You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. This is my boy. I have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. No Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week, survived that dreaded Valentine's Day and what have you, and now it's time for some nice film history time. I'm recording pretty early this week, it's Wednesday, because in the States it's President's Day weekend, which is going to be busy for me, so once again, no movies, there was no time, work has been crazy, not that there's anything that good out right now anyway, so again, let's see what next week brings. Anyway... This week, the man whom journeyed to New York City with $3 to his name, a second grade education, and a dream for a new life, one that would become beyond his wildest dreams, Sidney Poitier. Sidney would become the world's biggest movie star, and like many black actors, would have to fight racism, typecasting, and the like along the way in order to carve out his own place in Hollywood history. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. When I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harv's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, uh uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs, take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now. I'll have the FBI lab send you the report on this. Not that it'll make any difference. I'll take that. The son of a tomato farmer, Sidney Poitier was born on February 20th, 1927 in Miami, Florida. Oh, I think when this episode comes out, it's actually his birthday. Totally didn't mean to do that. That's kind of cool. Go me. Anyway, he was the youngest of seven children born to a couple who owned a farm on Cat Island, which is located in the Bahamas. According to Sidney, they were the poorest family on the island. Sidney's birth actually came as a surprise as he was born three months premature and as a result was not expected to survive. It was the 1920s after all. Reginald, Sidney's father, fashioned a shoebox to serve as a casket for his newborn son. As you could probably surmise, they did not need it. After Sidney was nursed back to health, the family returned to Cat Island until the Great Depression forced them to leave the farming life for the capital city of the Bahamas, Nassau. Sydney was 10 and a half years old. At 15, Sydney got... Sydney became a little bit of a bad boy, fell into the wrong crowd, basically became a full-on delinquent, got into a bunch of trouble with the other neighborhood boys. So to punish him and probably to straighten him out, Reginald banished his son to Miami, Florida to live with his older brother and his family. That was their problem now. 
In Miami, not having grown up with the level of systemic racism and mistreatment of black people, Sidney found himself being mistreated by white authoritarian figures in a manner he had not necessarily experienced at back at home. For example, a cop held a gun to his head as a quote-unquote joke when Sidney wandered into a segregated neighborhood after dark. Unwilling to live in the Jim Crow era South, and frankly, who would, unless you're white, Sidney decided he had no real future in the Sunshine State. He got on a bus and headed for the Big Apple. At 16, he was working at a coffee shop as a dishwasher. During this time, Sidney was sleeping in the toilet at the bus station before moving to the roof of another building and sleeping there. In 1943, Sidney had made enough money to move to Harlem, where he was shot in the leg during a riot with locals and the police. He treated his wound himself because very unlikely he had medical money. To get out of Harlem, he lied about his age to enlist in the army, but when the regimented life of a soldier didn't agree with him either, Sidney feigned insanity, but eventually came clean to a psychiatrist about his actual age. The psychiatrist put him in a study to keep him from getting in trouble, and Sidney was honorably discharged shortly before turning 18. After failing to get $100 from the President of the United States to return to the Bahamas, he wrote a letter and everything but never heard back, unsurprisingly. Sidney had no choice but to return to New York City. While looking in the newspapers for another dishwashing job, Sidney came across an ad looking for actors. He figured, why not? The first audition Sidney Poitier ever went on was for the American Negro Theater, and it went real bad. Frederick O'Neill, one of the theater's founders, actually yelled at Sidney after his audition, telling him not to waste anyone else's time and basically just go back to dishwashing. Sidney's thick accent was also a problem. In that moment, when some people would have just been like, well, this gave it a shot, wasn't for me, Sidney decided he was going to be an actor if for nothing more than to prove O'Neill wrong. Step one, the accent. To lose his accent, Sidney mimicked the announcers he heard on the radio each day. This took up hours of the young man's life. Six months later, he returned to the American Negro Theater in his best suit to audition once more. This time, he was given a three-month contract. Was he a better actor? Hard to say, but he was the only dude who showed up in a group of 41. Forty of them were women, only one was male. Sidney's first role was as the understudy to the lead in the play Days of Our Youth for another actor from the West Indies whom would also one day take show business by storm, Harry Belafonte. One night, while completing his understudy duties, a Broadway director saw Sidney and cast him in an all-black production of Lisa Strada, which is a Greek play. He had 12 lines in the show and froze in fear during his first performance. Sidney was angry with himself and considered going back to dishwashing after that one performance. But critics loved him and thought that Sidney's stage fright was actually a character choice. The show was not very successful. It only ran for four performances, but it got his foot in the door. By 1949, at the age of 22, Sidney Poitier became a relatively established Broadway actor. Then came a crossroads for the young man. He got two concurrent offers. The first to star in a Broadway play about the apartheid. The second was to go out west and star in a Joseph Mankiewicz film called No Way Out, in which he would play a doctor. Sidney chose Tinseltown. Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you were supposed to do. 
because you brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me, like I will owe my son if I ever have another. But you don't own me. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I tried to explain it the rest of your life, you will never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. With his first film role in the bag, Sidney married Juanita Hardy in 1950. The two had met while Sidney was working on Broadway. In 1951, Sidney Poitier went to South Africa for his role in Cry the Beloved Country. Because of their apartheid laws, he actually had to sign paperwork saying that he was director Zoltan Korda's indentured slave in order to work on the film in South Africa legally because that's where South Africa was at during this time. Sidney hit a little bit of a rough patch career-wise because he was possibly maybe kinda blacklisted during the HUAC trials, which if you forgot, was a period in time when the U.S. government was trying to prove that communists had infiltrated Hollywood. Spoiler alert, they had not. Sidney was never directly accused of being a communist, but he was friends with at least two of the accused, and that was enough for some. To pay rent... Sidney once more resorted to dishwashing and also construction to pay the bills. He also invested in a restaurant called Ribs in the Rough, which went horribly crashed and burned. If you want to know the quality of food they were they were making, one of his friends, one of his friends, mind you, called Sidney's Caribbean sauce, quote unquote, spicy glue. The Poitier family, which now included two young daughters, was forced to move into an attic apartment on Long Island. There, at the age of about 26, 27, Sidney began writing his autobiography. His fortunes did change when in 1955, the 28-year-old was cast as juvenile delinquent Gregory W. Miller in the film Blackboard Jungle. Sidney crushed the role and is one of the best parts of that film, but unfortunately, the work was not enough to make him a movie star. One of the biggest factors for Sidney not getting a well-deserved break was the color of his skin. There just wasn't a ton of parts available to black actors in the 1950s, save outside of, you know, what we talked about last week. Slaves, cleaning people, the help, and the like. This was made obvious by his next role offer, which was to play a janitor, which Sidney refused. He believed that if he stuck to his convictions, even if times got tough, there would come a day when the same parts given to his white cohorts would be offered to him as well. After signing with agent Martin Baum, the role slowly got better. After a few years came the defiant ones. Sidney played an escaped convict chained to a racist white dude. It was one of the first films ever made in Hollywood that showed two men of two different races having the same power over one another. Sidney and co-star Tony Curtis shared top billing as well. While the ending of the film was polarizing depending on where you saw it, Sidney's character gives up his freedom to help his white counterpart, which was a hit in the white neighborhoods that saw the movie and caused a lot of derision in the black neighborhoods that saw the movie. They were like, stay on the train, stay on the train. But despite that, both Sidney and Curtis received Academy Award nominations for their work. 
For that film, Sidney also won the Berlin Film Festival Award for the role and moved his growing family of five to a 14-room house in Mount Vernon, New York. His next role raised some eyebrows, to put it lightly. Sidney took on the role of Porgy in the film Porgy and Bess, which is based on a musical of the same name, which is based on an opera. It's more than a little baffling that this play was adapted to be a film at all, as all prior productions of it had been just short of disastrous, but here we are. The film would be Samuel Goldwyn's last film as a producer before he retired. Sidney plays Porgy, like I said, who is a disabled beggar who gets around in a cart driven by a goat. The promotion of the film features Sidney significantly on his knees, an image that was quite triggering for the black community, and they didn't want to see the most, you know, the most famous black actor in Hollywood on his knees surrounded by the other white actors. It's not a good look. Black activist groups had fought the film hardcore to get made at all because of its depictions of black people and called it a singing minstrel show. Sidney had actually turned the part down the first time it was offered to him when Goldwyn had refused to give Sidney the right to edit some of the more offensive parts of the movie. Goldwyn cussed him out for even asking. Sidney would eventually take the part not really, it's not really clear why he did that, and his image among the black community suffered quite a bit as a result. As for the quality of Porgy and Bess, it's hard to say because the film is actually considered semi-lost. No high-quality print of the film is available to the public as George Gershwin, one of the songwriters of the original show, had deemed it a, quote, piece of shit and asked Goldwyn to destroy all surviving prints. Bootlegs are available on the internet, however, and a digitized version is on record at the Library of Congress. A film version, like old-school 35mm version of this film in the wild is considered one of the holy grails of rare movies. After Porgy and Bess, Sidney returned to theater where he starred in A Raisin in the Sun. Two years later, he reprised the role in the film version in 1961. While he had been working on Porgy and Bess, Sidney had met Diane Carroll, a singer-slash-actress whom had had a small role in the film. The two later starred as a couple in Paris Blues. They fell in love, as people are one to do, and Sidney got a Mexican divorce from his first wife, Juanita, and he and Diane were engaged shortly thereafter. The two would never marry, but would stay together for nine years. Sidney's next major role was in Lilies of the Field in 1963, which shot over a period of two weeks. He played a handyman that helps out a group of German nuns. Also, it was a comedy. This would be the film that finally pretty much cemented Sidney Poitier in the Hollywood strata. A comedy. Not dissing on comedies, but that dude acted his ass off in some real intense dramas, only to be recognized in a movie where he was funny. I love it. Sidney would become the first black actor to win Best Actor at the Academy Awards for this part. Because it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to countless numbers of people, principally among whom are Ralph Nelson, James Poe, William Barrett, Martin Baum, and of course, the member of the Academy. For all of them, all I can say is a very special thank you.
What should have opened the door to other Black actors, Sydney winning an Oscar, yielded very little change. It was pretty much all or nothing, in fact. The joke going around the studios at this time was, if you can't get Poitier, rewrite the part for a white actor. There was even an article that ran in Variety mirroring this sentiment. And it's not like there was a lot to go around anyway, part-wise. Frankly, the parts that Sydney was being offered weren't that great. After a series of widely forgettable films, he did get a chance to live out a childhood dream, playing a horse dealer in the 1966 Western duel at Diablo. He loved Westerns. Sidney also became more involved in the civil rights movement during this time, using his name and influence to bring attention to the movement. He had been taking part in the civil rights movement for years and had even been present during the March on Washington in 1963, during which Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Also, he was about to become the biggest movie star in the biz. In 1967, Sidney appeared in three films. Two of those would shake up the norms of African Americans on screen. First one, not so much. He played a teacher in To Sir With Love, um, which he agreed to do because he thought the film was uplifting and kind of funny. He plays a teacher in London to a group of diverse kids. That appealed to him. It's a good film, but it's not like the next two we're about to talk about. Because the next one he was in was The Heat of the Night, in which he played Virgil Tibbs, which if you're eagle-eared, you've realized that you've heard the tiniest snippet of Sydney in every opening of this show. The Heat of the Night is a crime drama which saw Sydney playing a police detective. The film confronted a racial problem in the country in such a way, especially when dealing with the two officers, one black and one white in the film, and how they interacted had a major effect on pop culture. Also in the film, Sydney is slapped by a white man whom he immediately slaps back. This was revolutionary stuff for this time. His other film that year is the one he's probably most remembered for. Guess who's coming to dinner? The film famously dealt with the, at the time, taboo subject of interracial relationships and marriage. The film also featured the first Hollywood interracial kiss. To give you an idea of how, like, revolutionary of a film this was at the time, in 1967, it was still illegal in 17 U.S. states to get married if you weren't the same color. Like, that was 60 years ago? I can't do math right now. 50, 60 years ago? Like, my parents were, like, teenagers, and it was still illegal to marry somebody who wasn't the same color as you. That is, that's, it's, was not that long ago. Despite these big strides in Black representation in Hollywood, like I said last week, a step forward in Hollywood does not necessarily mean it's a step forward anywhere else. Sydney began to be criticized for being typecast as over-idealized African-American characters who were not permitted to have any sexuality or personality faults. Sidney was a super smart dude and was aware that this was the case, but he was conflicted. He wanted to play different roles. He wanted to be challenged, but he also felt obligated to set an example with his characters by challenging other old stereotypes, as he was the only male major actor of African descent being cast in any leading roles in Hollywood at this time. Some would accuse him of being a flag bearer for his race instead of enacting any social change. But like Hattie McDaniel, he was locked into his time. There's only so much he could do. 
One thing he did in 1969, alongside Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman, the other two biggest stars of the era, Sidney Poitier founded First Artists, a production company that would allow the three great control over their work. Sidney's first film under First Artists was called The Lost Man. During this production, he would meet his second wife, Joanna Shimkus. The film was an attempt to be a direct response to the increase of militant reactions to the civil rights movement. Instead of bringing awareness, Sidney was actually critiqued heavily for this film, which also bombed at the box office. First artists would only be around for about 11 years. The late 60s, early 70s saw the rise of the era of the black exploitation film, which was incredibly popular among African American audiences and every so often white audiences as well, making Sidney's polished exterior no longer the one that was in vogue. He was a classically trained actor on top of all of that, and the big action films and the cheesiness and the music and all the stuff just didn't appeal to him at all. He refused to do those kinds of films. Sidney returned to the Bahamas and built a man in his hometown of Nassau. He would start spending more and more time there instead of Hollywood while he figured out what to do next. Then came a career shift. During the shooting of Buck and the Preacher in 1971, in which he and Harry Belafonte played former slaves turned homesteaders, the original director of the film was fired and Sidney stepped into the role. He would spend the next several years in the director's chair, making A Warm December in 1973 and Uptown Saturday Night in 1974. In all, in the 1970s, Sidney would direct and star in five films. They were widely comic in nature as he hoped to provide laughs for black audiences instead of the violence of the black exploitation films. Sidney stepped away from acting for most of the 1980s, instead focusing on directing. He did Stir Crazy, starring Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, Hanky Panky, starring Gene Wilder and his wife Gilda Radner, who was on SNL and was amazing, and a dance film called Fast Forward. He also released his first autobiography in 1980. Unable to find scripts that he liked as an actor, Sidney opted just not to act. He only appeared in two films as an actor in the 1980s, which, let's be honest, was not a great time for films unless it was sci-fi or teen movies, which ain't a Sidney Poitier film. But the movies he was in in the 1980s were Shoot to Kill and Little Nikita. Sidney directed Ghost Dad in 1990 and appeared in the film Sneakers as an actor in 1992. In the pop culture sphere, a play and then a film called Six Degrees of Separation, the film was released in 1991, was based on the true story of a young man who pretended to be Sidney's son in order to be invited into New York white society. Sidney was not happy about the situation when the real thing happened or when the play came out, and especially not when the movie was released, but there was nothing he could really do about that. Also in 1991, Sidney achieved the AFI, the American Films Institute, Award for Lifetime Achievement. It was the first of a series of well-earned awards and recognition for his career in its entirety. Also that year, he played Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court justice in a TV movie. In 1993, Sidney was diagnosed with, and then beat, prostate cancer. In 1997, he returned to South Africa, you know, the country that made him become an indentured slave to work in the country so many years prior, to play Nelson Mandela in Mandela and to Kirk. His last film role as an actor would also be that year in 1997's The Jackal. 
In April 1997, Sidney was appointed ambassador from the Bahamas to Japan, a position he held until 2007. From 2002 to 2007, he was also the ambassador of the Bahamas to the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Sidney won a spoken word Grammy in 2001 for voicing his second autobiography, Measure of a Man, a Spiritual Autobiography. In 2002, Sidney received an honorary Oscar for his contribution to American cinema. That night, Denzel Washington won the award for Best Actor for his performance in Training Day, becoming the second Black actor, after Sidney, to win that award. In his speech, he told Sidney he would always be chasing after him. In 2009, Sidney was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award by then-President Barack Obama. On January 6, 2022, last month, after a life very well lived, Sidney Poitier died at his Beverly Hills home with his family and friends by his side. He was 94 years old. Tributes came pouring out of Hollywood as well as people like Barack Obama, President Joe Biden, and Oprah Winfrey. Broadway paid tribute to him as well when its theaters dimmed their lights on January 19th at 7.45 in his honor. His family held a private memorial on January 24th due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. I can sit here and toil over the keyboard about how I want to wrap this up and, you know, poorly summarize this guy's life. But so instead, since his death is very recent and it turns out it's his birthday today, if you're listening to this on release day. So I want to end this episode instead with excerpts from the statement his family released announcing the death of their beloved husband, father and grandfather, because who better than that to sum up the life of this incredible man? Quote, to us, Sidney Poitier was not only a brilliant actor, activist, and a man of incredible grace and moral fortitude, he was also a devoted and loving husband, a supportive and adoring father, and a man who always put family first. He is our guiding light who lit up our lives with infinite love and wonder. His smile was healing, his hugs the warmest refuge, and his laughter was infectious. We could always turn to him for wisdom and solace, and his absence feels like a giant hole in our family and our hearts. Although he is no longer here with us in this realm, his beautiful soul will continue to guide and inspire us. He will live on in us, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, in every belly laugh, every curious inquiry, every act of compassion and kindness. His legacy will live on in the world, continuing to inspire not only with his incredible body of work, but even more so with his humanity. So many have been touched by our dad's extraordinary life, his unwavering sense of decency, and respect for his fellow man. His faith in humanity never faltered. So know that for all the love you've shown him, he loved you back. I arrived in Hollywood at the age of 22 in a time different than today's. A time in which the odds against my standing here tonight 53 years later would not have fallen in my favor. Back then, no route had been established for where I was hoping to go. No pathway left in evidence for me to trace. No custom for me to follow. Yet here I am this evening at the end of a journey that in 1949 would have been considered almost impossible and in fact might never have been set in motion were there not an untold number of courageous, unselfish choices 
made by a handful of visionary American filmmakers, directors, writers, and producers, each with a strong sense of citizenship responsibility to the times in which they lived. I accept this award in memory of all the African-American actors and actresses who went before me in the difficult years, on whose shoulders I was privileged to stand to see where I might go. My love... And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. So next week, I'm still kind of between two subjects. There's two I really want to do and I haven't decided on which one I want to do for next week. So it'll be a surprise just as much for you as it currently is to me. So anyway, thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.